0: I'd like to welcome you to the first podcast of the Compass series of podcasts and the topic today is on climate justice and we have several people to discuss the topic. But most importantly, we have two speakers and the first speaker is Dr. Devon Peña. He's a professor in the Department of Anthropology in the fields of agriculture, environment, and sociocultural anthropology at the University of Washington. He's involved in several participatory action research projects related to the protection of the acequia farming communities of the upper Rio Grande watershed. This includes continuing work to implement and amplify the 2009 Colorado Acequia Recognition Law. He works as a farmer, seed saver, plant breeder, and philanthropist through his family's nonprofit educational and research foundation, the Acequia Institute. The Institute is located on a 200 acre acequia farm in the San Acacio bottomlands and on the historic San Luis Peoples Ditch in Southern Colorado. He lives and works at the farm during the irrigation to harvest cycle every year and continues with applied projects in restoration, ecology, permaculture, shifting mosaics of annual perennial polycultures and plant breeding and seed saving programs for the conservation of the genomic diversity and integrity of local and land of local land race heirloom varieties of the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash in the upper Rio Grande Headwaters bioregion. And Devon has put together a video clip for us today, uh, but I'd also like to introduce you to the respondent who's uh, Dr. Renaldo Macias. He is a faculty member and founding chair of the UCLA Cesar Chavez Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies and the Cesar Chavez Center for Interdisciplinary Instruction. He has joint faculty appointments in the Departments of Education and Applied Linguistics. His previous academic appointment was in the UC Santa Barbara Department of Education, during which time he was also the director of the University of California's Linguistic Minority Research Institute between July 1992 in December, 1997. The Institute is designed to focus the academic and research resources of the nine campuses of the University of California on improving the situation of language minorities in the California schools. He is the author, co-author, and editor of six books and over three dozen research articles and chapters on such topics as bilingual education, teacher supply and demand, Chicanos and schooling, adult literacy, language choice, analyses of national language survey data, population projects, language policies, and media research. So those are our two major speakers, but I also wanted to let you know that around the table, we have Raul Contreras from Indiana University, Northwest, uh, Manuel Hernandez from Arizona State University, Ernesto Mireles from Prescott College, and myself, uh, Carlene Pendleton Jimenez from Trent University. And with that, I would like to go ahead and show you a video clip that uh, Devon has put together to start the discussion.
1: Mocto, gracias. Thank you for joining us in this podcast that's part of the Knox uh, René Nunez Political Action Committee Series for the National Association for Chicano and Chicano Studies. It is my privilege to be here with you this evening from Nuche, Dine, Tewa and territory in Southern Colorado, San Luis Valley. We are in sacred land, just to the north of me, my horizon, this is Najini, one of the sacred mounds of the Dine or Navajo Nation. It is with a great deal of concern shared by the National Association for Chicana and Chicano Studies and my colleagues at Compass, that we launched this with a focus on the questions posed not just by climate chaos and the struggle for climate justice, but given the implications also of the COVID-19 pandemic, the widespread fires in California, Oregon, Washington, and across the Intermountain West, all of which I will hope to show you in a moment are connected to the same processes that are creating climate Chaos. There are some principles that I want to make clear that have been articulated by this movement for climate justice. I also want to point out that this movement grows out of the earlier cycles of struggle by the environmental justice movement with roots in the 1980s and struggles against toxic waste and race. The climate crisis, the first principle states, is a consequence of the metabolic and societal disorders that are associated with settler colonialism and capitalism. We, all our relations are dying in the shadows of the Capitolocene. You've heard the term Anthropocene, that blames all of humanity, but not every human being is destructive in their relationship to the environment in the manner that capitalist corporations, settler colonial nation states, and other powers that are acting on a global scale are capable of doing. Black, indigenous, and people of color, including Chicanequis, populations are already suffering disproportionate impacts and effects from global processes of environmental violence and it's very important to see environmental violence as a form of structural violence that is unleashed specifically under the conditions of neoliberal globalization deregulation corporate control a market fundamentalist approach of the, the regime that is in fact augmenting the effects of what marx called the second contradiction of capitalism which is to say, the tendency for capitalism to destroy the very natural, social, cultural, and ecological conditions of its own existence. The third principle is that, therefore, climate chaos is not just about human cost problems. It's not anthropogenic. It is a problem of capitalism It is driven by the destruction of the planet's life support systems under the dominant settler colonial formations that serve globalizing capital, social, and market forces. In other words, climate chaos is not just a function of the old ruse about overpopulation or uh, underdevelopment, too many poor people uh, destroying the environment and setting fires, for example, of the fires that are caused in the Amazon, in Indonesia, in Borneo and other places in Mexico are caused by corporations seeking to drive indigenous people out. So the whole mythology about little brown people destroying the planet and causing climate change is a capitalist settler colonial myth. We must recognize that capitalism and settler colonialism are the precise problem. And then finally, and this is actually the most important principle of the climate justice movement. I take it from Cliff Adleo Jr, an Aboriginal from Canada who's written a, a very profound work on this question. And he puts it in very simple terms. There is no indigenizing capitalism. There is no way to make capitalism compatible with something the Zapatistas taught us a long time ago when they launched their revolt against NAFTA and neoliberal capitalism in Mexico. What did they say? Everything is for sale except for indigenous dignity. The dignity to be able to eat your own traditional, safe, healthy, fresh foods, the dignity to be able to farm the way your ancestors have, to care for the seeds and the plants that are vital to your sense of being, your well being, and community health. The dignity of being able to drink clean water and breathe clean air. The dignity of being able to have access to all the health care and all the education as dictated by your own community based knowledge requires. The dignity be to be treated in the manner that recognizes that ecosystems have a right to dignity as well. And so this is a very profound indictment of the capitalist settler colonial system that we are proposing in this crisis statement, but it would be wrong for us to focus only on the problems. So after outlining the key problems that we're addressing in this climate crisis statement, I wanna get to solutions. What are we demanding? And more importantly, what are we doing already? First of all, we need to challenge the idea that what we're facing is simple climate change. The climate has changed well before humans were on the planet, and it will change long after we are gone. It's chaos that's happening. The unpredictability, the disruptions, that one year here, you see back here is my cornfield from this season. Some years, there's no water. Other years, there's plenty of water. This year, the snow hit two weeks early. Last year, the season lasted two weeks longer than normal. It's chaos. It's unpredictable. There's no way to predict what's going to happen. And this creates cumulative effects that the scientific community is only starting to recognize and understand. But it does create great dislocation, displacement, and hardship, not just for land-based peoples, but as you will see in a moment, for people in the cities as well. Climate chaos is destroying the natural systems that we depend on to produce our food, our medicine, our clothing, and our shelter. We are facing a crisis already in which native indigenous communities from the Arctic, like at Kivalina, to the Andes and the Pacific Rim Island nations are already being devastated by the chaos of climate change. It's not a future effect. It is, in fact, an effect of the past couple of decades, if not longer. We're also facing a crisis in which Black, indigenous, and other people of color and low-income persons and the elderly are already being killed or displaced by the effects of climate change and chaos. This leads us to a very necessary evaluation has always been the case with the environmental justice movement of looking at disparate impacts. There's evidence of these disparate impacts, and we have to weigh this in order to consider our own political options and strategies. There are urban heat islands. For example, research confirms that African Americans in the United States are 52% more likely to live in urban heat islands compared to whites. The same is the case uh, for Asian Americans who are 32% more likely and for Latinos, uh, Latinas and Latinx people who are 21% more likely. By an urban heat island, we mean a neighborhood that is five to 10 degrees hotter than the rest of the city. This has to do, of course, with gentrification, segregation, the lack of open space and green spaces in BIPOC communities. And it is uh, extremely problematic because there are neighborhoods, for example, in Phoenix in 2017, in the neighborhood of Guadalupe, which is a predominantly Native American Tohono O'odham neighborhood, 155 people died during the heat wave. So this impact of urban heat islands is disproportionately affecting BIPOC and low-income communities. We are also more vulnerable to extreme cold weather and um, mortality from uh, the effects of extreme cold weather events. This is certainly the case in rural communities and on Native American reservations that have faced uh, a shortage of access to heating supplies, whether it's wood or gas or propane or electric. These are basically rural colonias that are underserved and lack the infrastructure to protect their elderly and ill uh, and low income populations from extreme cold. Of course, there are disparate impacts on farm and natural resource and other food chain workers, especially because they are vulnerable uh, under the current conditions of climate change and the COVID-19 pandemic. They're threatened by heat waves, fires, the pandemic conditions that are exacerbated by climate chaos so that farm workers, for uh, for, example, in California face not only the smoke and smoke related illness and asthma attacks that they'll have from working in the fields during these fires, but that will make them even more vulnerable to COVID-19. And then that's exacerbated by lack of access to healthcare and to adequate nutrition. So the hands that feed us, that send food from the farm to the table themselves cannot eat correctly because of these forms of structural violence. All this is interrelated and it's part of the structural racism that is affecting us and our communities through these disparate impacts. There are also climate refugees that are suffering uh, disparate impacts. Many of these folks are here because of the so-called dirty wars in Central America, for example. All the murderous regimes that were supported by US foreign policy, the militarization and neoliberalization of Central America and Mexico is precisely what's led to this diaspora of mostly indigenous people who are no longer able to farm on their land because they have no water or because they've been driven out by corporate farms or by drug dealers and drug cartels. And it is also important to note that these are the very same people, the very same families that are having their children put inside cages as the families are separated under the current fascist regime. So all this, again, is interconnected. We also have the displacement of cultures of habitat. By this, I mean is that indigenous peoples have long been recognized for their uh, deep traditions of resilient co-inhabitation of environments. Indigenous peoples tend not to degrade their environments. In fact, their homelands tend to be the most important hotspots of biological diversity across the planet. That's not an accident, it is not a coincidence, is a direct result of multi-generational transmission of traditional environmental knowledge about how to co-inhabit place without impoverishing the environment that is your home, that is, without destroying your mother. These cultures of habitat are just being displaced by all of the above. Uh, and of course, narco drug cartels, as well as military actions and military foreign policy on the part of the United States, are primary forces alongside things like the Plan Panama, as they used to call it, uh, the building of massive infrastructure, in Tren Maya, that AMLO, uh, unfortunately, has decided to continue using uh, or planning to build, despite the large scale, massive opposition to it on the part of the indigenous communities of Mexico that would be affected by the threat Maya. So that's an additional threat that we've known about all along. These are all consequences of continued governance of Mexico by settler colonialism. Finally, we have uh, food system and food sovereignty impacts that we need to address. It's really important. And this is where I see a lot of promise because a lot of us this summer, ever since COVID-19 appeared on the scene and all of us who are farmers and producing food and food waste have mobilized our communities in order to feed those who don't have access to food. And moreover, to help them build a capacity to produce their own food. The food sovereignty movement connects all the dots. We can farm in a way that is part of carbon sequestration. We can farm in a way that restores the health of our people by restoring traditional cuisine. We need to restore traditional food waste or traditional indigenous agroecosystems, all of which are part of millinery uh, food uh, justice and agricultural regenerative practices. Air quality is a big issue as well. We need to recognize that as far back as 1987 with respect to both air and water quality 1987 the united church of christ racial commission on commission on racial justice pardon me published the famous toxic waste and waste report that 1987 report was done 20 years later uh, again in 2007 and in both cases there was no improvement actually over that period of 20 years it was found that uh Uh, Mexican origin communities are drinking the most polluted water uh, alongside African American and Native American communities. This is no surprise. We're exposed to lead in our water. Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. And this is a problem that has been known for uh, decades, actually, because it is a widespread problem among BIPOC communities. And so access to water Uh, let alone the issue of quality is also an important issue. We find that uh, more than 1.8 billion people planet-wide will be suffering uh, from uh, water stress conditions. By uh, 2017, this was the case. By 2021, we're now predicting that it'll be over 2 billion people facing extreme water stress. Who do you think that'll be? It'll be people of color and indigenous people all over the planet, including inside US, Mexico, Canada, and other parts of Abiyayala. What are our demands? Well, first of all, we are so proud of and inspired by the youth who have led the climate strike actions across the United States. These actions continue. I want to point out that it's not just uh, Greta. I mean, Greta is fantastic and a good accomplice. But I'm thinking here of, of Chuta Scott Martinez and all the other youth who filed the lawsuit in uh, Juliana versus the United States. We need to remember that BIPOC youth have let the climate justice movement longer than any other group. And we need to continue supporting their activism, educating our youth and empowering them to have the resources they need to establish this as a permanent struggle until we win. We also call on United States universities and colleges to divest themselves of stocks in fossil fuel and other extractive industries that are the principal drivers of all this environmental violence. We further call on higher education institutions to end their participation in global land grabs, the stealing of land across the global south from Mexico to Ghana to Zimbabwe, you name it, Botswana, these universities including Harvard and Texas are spying land up like crazy across the global south. Indigenous people of their ancestral lands and it robs the world as a whole of the loss of the sustainable, resilient and equitable cultures of habitat that are protecting the planet. So not only are we destroying cultures, we're destroying the very cultures that are helping to protect the planet and that point us in the direction of a more resilient, equitable and sustainable future. We also resolve that the Green New Deal is an essential tool for education and encouraging civic engagement among our students and faculty, and especially calling the shapers of this initiative in Congress to include community-based and grassroots-led projects for ecological restoration of our wounded watersheds and ecosystems, both in urban and rural areas. We also call for legal recognition of access to safe water and culturally appropriate food as basic universal human rights. We also find, and must emphasize this point, because land acknowledgement, like what I did at the opening, without relational solidarity on the ground is performative allyship. We need to avoid just performing, being good allies. We need to be good allies on the ground, be accomplices in the struggles for reparations to indigenous and other land and water-based communities in the U.S. and across the world. The primary reparations must involve investments to return native lands to rightful indigenous caregiver heirs and to heal the colonial wounds that are suffered by the land, water, air, and people. This should be an underlying principle of the Green New Deal. Finally, when we wrote this crisis statement, uh, Gabriel Valle and myself, uh, when we were invited to do so by the Knox board back in October of last year, and I believe we submitted and published in November of last year, COVID-19 had not appeared on the scene yet. As a result of that, I've taken the liberty of writing uh, these next few words with respect to our demands that I believe are consistent with the rest of the statement. We recognize that the current COVID-19 pandemic is a direct metabolic disorder caused by the very same capitalist practices that are leading to climate chaos. We recognize that the disparate impact of the pandemic on black and brown bodies and communities results from the embedded structural and racialized violence that denies us access to healthcare while forcing us to live work play and pray in contaminated higher risk environments we therefore call on the uses of education and civic engagement by our students and teachers to actively engage in struggles to promote a better understanding of healthcare as a universal human right, and to end the kind of racism that has defined the demographics of the pandemic. I wanted to invite you all to reflect on these ideas that we've presented through the Knox statement on the climate crisis. But I think the most important thing I would ask for everyone to reflect on is the need for us to be action-oriented, is to have a praxis, is to have a daily participation, not as an individual. That's the wrong question. And that's what the Zapatistas would tell you. You know, if you're going to do mandar obedecer, if you're going to lead by obeying, you're obeying the collective will of a movement, not of an individual desire. Individual action is pointless. What we need is to grow a mass-based social movement and support those movements that are developing a struggle that intersects with the philosophical and practical and in fact, indigenous desires of our communities. Mocto, gracias. Stay well. Well, there you have the presentation I did on the knock statement on the
2: gracias.
1: climate crisis.
2: Okay, my um, my response is is not uh, one of uh, traditional. Uh, criticism of, of an academic presentation. It's within the framework of the purpose of Compass uh, as a uh, policy political analysis uh, positioning uh, uh, unit uh, within Knox. And so uh, there are a couple of, of issues that I will address with regards to the statement and the addendum that uh, Devon has has added or shared with us that relates to uh, really public health but framed within the the current covid-19 pandemic or sar2 um, the, uh, uh, the 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 two questions that uh, that i'm going to uh, raise with regards to the presentation uh, focus both on the original statement and the addendum. Okay, so I'm going to take it as uh, as a whole. The first question is uh, whether Chicana and Chicano studies, and that is where is there a particular Chicanao perspective with regards to what has been framed as the climate crisis, uh, climate justice, environmental crisis, environmental justice, um, and I think that there are a number of things that that have to uh, go within that. Uh, the um, the the other has to do with. Uh, uh, the framework that we are dealing with uh, in this in relationship to Chicana and Chicano studies. And that is uh, the cultural differences uh, as opposed to the racial differences uh, as a frame for looking at uh, the, the whole area of climate crisis or environmental crisis and justice. Uh, and and why do I, I put that there? Uh, it's within the framework of Chicana and Chicano studies that, um, uh, that I raise this issue, because it is a particularly important or salient one for how we deal with not only political positions, but policy alternatives uh, in relationship to different kinds of of issues. And so, so I, I just want to very quickly uh, lay out uh, three things. What, what's Chicana Chicano studies? It's primarily the study of uh, the Indo-Hispano, Indo-Mestizo-Mulato-Hispano population, the taproot of which is indigenous. Uh, and so it's a, it's a multiple subjectivity of the Mexican population with, if you want, a small m that covers uh, any number of uh, uh, of groups, and so the focus is on the diversity of the group and the range of, of variations within the group. Um, and then, secondly, you know what what's the nature of 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 the questions that, in large part, we address within Chicana and Chicano studies. It's who are we? What's our material situation in the world, and what do we do about it? Uh, and We've learned from the kind of research that has been done in the past uh, and that is still being done uh, that uh, that that Chicana Chicano studies scholarship should at least uh, include uh, historicized, contextualized, politicized that is dealing with power and indigenized frameworks in order to uh, to be. Uh, to avoid the kinds of biases, flaws, and fatal flaws of Western-centric positivistic uh, research that uh, uh, leads more to stereotypes, incomplete study, and a number of other kinds of of things, which gets us into uh, what are the big ideas that we have to deal with, particularly in, in analyzing uh, what our material situation in the world is, and that has to be race, uh, culture, uh, sex, gender, and sexuality, and uh, um, and class and political economy. So the idea that that uh, that we're going to prioritize one of these over another has been part of the discussion or debates over uh, theoretically. Uh, embraced uh, scholars that say, no, you know, class is the, 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 the primary consideration, or race is the primary consideration, or sex is the primary consideration, or sexuality is the primary consideration. That drives everything else. Uh, but within Chicana and Chicano studies, taken as a whole, we have to deal with each of these four big ideas because that's the way that uh, much of the society, particularly in the US, but more broadly is organized along these four dimensions or axes, but also power is distributed along these four powers and, and dimensions. So, so if we're going to be dealing with that, particularly from a political or a policy standpoint, we have to take into account all of those kinds of things. So, so in, in, in the, both the presentation that was written and adopted, by the Knox board, what is it, two years ago, I guess, and then the, the addendum that, that we uh, were just shared, then, then my concern is uh, where, where is the cultural element? And by cultural element, uh, I don't mean just the indigenous approach, but what is the indigenous approach and how does it relate then to Chicana and Chicano studies in terms of a Knox positioning both in terms of analysis and in terms of alternatives to this. And, and that's where I think uh, we, you know, we really could, could benefit from a discussion of, of, of these two questions that, uh, that addresses then our interactions with uh, other groups and with uh, policies and politics. Let me take a couple of, of quick uh, examples related to the, uh, uh, to the presentation, uh, where the notion of, of capitalism and colonialism, you mentioned settler colonialism, uh, is, is most particularly uh, presented here. It's really in relationship to the extractive uh, economic activities of, of both, uh, and, uh, and, and they're not the same uh, in, in that respect, but there are similarities and there are differences and there are changes over 500 years. So the question is in part, what, what are those and how do they change and how do they affect uh, uh, the, 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 the local as well as the indigenous? Uh, the local areas, the, the the indigenous populations, but also the multiple uh, 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 processes. Now, when we talk about, you know black and brown, or you know, uh, bipoc as you as you put it, uh, uh, which is generally referred to as 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 black and indigenous peoples of color, uh, it, it it concerns me that we are prioritizing race as opposed to the distinctiveness of culture in relationship to to our people. And what that means is that uh, while indigenous is put there, you know, it's from a color standpoint in US discussion, uh, indigenous people are American Indian uh, and are red. You know, but Mexicans are, you know, in 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 the general policy political framed as immigrants and brown. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, there, there, there's always this underlying question of yeah, well, are we really brown? Because it's uh, it, you know, a lot of us are quote white uh, as opposed to 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 Moreno or Prieto, uh, much less Indian, and so on. And so it it, it it becomes a matter of putting the Mexican population, el milagro mexicano, in terms of, of race and, and and color and, and uh, features and a whole lot of other things into the, the color framework of the U.S., uh, which is uh, even within the black community, you know, if you're white, you're right. If you're brown, uh, stick around. If you're black, stand back. Okay, and and it 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 is a, a process that uh, uh, distorts the messaging of una perspectiva chicana uh, within the, the these political uh, processes. And so so the idea of the relationship of Chicana and Chicano studies as an indigenous You know, and we get back into this uh, discussion epistemologically that Roberto uh, Rodriguez raised a number of years ago when we were uh, developing the Indigenous Caucus within Knox. You know, is Chicana and Chicano studies a, a wing of Indigenous studies, or is Indigenous studies a wing of Chicana and Chicano studies? And I'm not sure that we have to answer that question. Uh, in terms of dealing with this relationship, but how we deal with the relationship is important in terms of dealing with our political analysis. Because if we're not seeing ourselves in, as an indigenous group or you know, a predominantly indigenous group, then the issues uh, that you raise uh, Devon in, in the statement and in the addendum, particularly related to agriculture and farming, uh, and and being water protectors and so on then really uh, get off uh, uh, get get covered up uh, in in terms of, of of our positioning to be able to speak about it you know as opposed to supporting another group in relationship to it and and it seems to me that the work that you've been doing uh, in the sequia is really uh, uh uh, belies, you know that that framework of of, of looking at indigeneity as another group, uh, and 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 that's where I think the answer to where is Chicana and Chicano studies in relationship to all of this really becomes important. Uh, the 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 uh, recent uh, discussion of uh, of the fires in California, and particularly them being fire complexes. Uh, and, and the critique from the Trump administration that the reason that they're, they're so bad is because of, of California's fire uh, management uh, as opposed to uh, uh, environmental uh, changes that are taking place uh, was discussed in an article in the LA Times not too long ago that said if we look at Mexican uh, forest management will see a very different uh, process that uh, uh, allows for uh, less intense fires and less fire spread than we see in California. Uh, if I, if I just uh... so, so, so the I no, I'm just kind of using this as as an example. So, so the idea of of. of 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 where Chicana and Chicano studies fits into to say well you know that example is is okay but it's not really uh, a good one uh, or you know if uh, uh, if if the idea is 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 good it's because of these uh, principles with regards to to how you relate to and manage. Uh, all life, including trees and bushes and, and plants and so on. And so so it, it seems to me that, that, that the voice of uh, Chicana and Chicano studies or the voices of Chicana and Chicano studies are still not being heard when we discuss it or present it in relationship to the kind of political, Western-centric approach to environment to climate and so on, so it's it it, 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 it those are the kinds of things that uh, uh, that I would like to see, and especially along the the lines of the four demands, you know, youth involvement, um, you know, and and mentioning you know uh, North, northwestern European uh, leadership and bipoc leadership, but not Chicano leadership, and 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 in particular the kind the kind of work that you uh, are doing, seems to me to, 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 to beg the question then of what, what do we base our position on? Uh, stop stealing the land, uh, you know tremendously, but, uh, but it's, it's more than that. It's the whole basis of, of private property in terms of that stealing of the land that ignores the notion of not public property, but social property that is collectively uh, organized and and dealt with in terms of a self-sufficiency of community. Which leads us then to the issue of urban heat uh, uh, plates because much of that heat is because of the amount of cement, asphalt and other covering of the earth. That has taken place that reflects the heat in ways that uh, uh, that really needs to, to, to be taken into account. So, what is the urban planning position of Chicana and Chicano studies relative to that? You know, uh, so the, you know, and, and the same thing with the Green New Deal and and the, the relationship to health and and uh, and zoological transfer of viruses from bats pigs, other animals to to humans, which has a much longer uh, tradition within European uh, populations than it did in other populations in the world. And the spread of capitalist framework of, uh, uh, of, of economic relations has, uh, has put us as a world human community at risk for this. So, you know, the, the the idea of of what you know our Chicana and Chicano studies perspectives with regards to health then it seems to me are particularly important. Not just the differential impact on black and brown bodies, but on, on the on the whole idea of of the uh, uh, of its impact on humans. Uh, and, and, and and if there is environmental or climate change that takes place because it's a dynamic, organic earth and, and, and system, uh, then what's the human contribution to that, particularly in relationship to violence and not just uh, a question of what the impact is in terms of the inequalities that have been uh uh addressed in terms of violence uh against people of color or the poor or uh others as a result of these economic systems anyway that that, in some ways that's that's a lot but it seems to me that given the broad framework of 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 an effect a positioning on a world issue that we have to you know take into account then uh what is the contribution that Knox and you know uh and this particular uh caucus can can provide so that that that, that, that would that that would be my my contribution i
1: agradezco mucho professor uh, every word that you shared with us before i, I invite raul and, and manuel to, to chime in i would like a chance to respond to some of the things you said one of the first things I wanted to respond to is what Trump said about the fires in California, because it gives me a chance to illustrate some of the points you're asking us to make. Now this was a two-page statement, so we couldn't get into the elaboration of all the issues, but I'm certainly sympathetic to everything you said. Um, the California fires happen on federal lands, so it's actually the responsibility of the federal government to manage most of those lands because they're either BLM or Forest Service lands or National Park lands. Very little of state lands are involved in this, uh, which is not to say that California has done a good job with those either. They have not. Why? Because they've ignored Ohlone wisdom. I have a colleague, uh, MCAT Anderson, who's for 30 years has been studying the fire ecology of the Ohlone native people of California. The oak savanna was intensely managed by them for hundreds, even thousands of years as an ecosystem with frequent low-intensity fire. And instead, smoke of the bear, a racist smoke of the bear shows up. And what do you get? Fire suppression, not just in California, but on all public lands. So the racist smoke of the bear prevents indigenous people from harvesting dead timber for fire or for construction materials. They suppress fire and end up building up the fuel load of these forests over a period of more than 100 years. And the first warning sign was when Yellowstone blew up. In 1987, I believe, was the Yellowstone fire. You recall that, Rinaldo? And that was the beginning of these frequent high-intensity fires that are they're called stand replacement fires. And they replace the whole stand, and they can actually prevent the regeneration of the forest because the fire is so hot that it kills the aspen roots that are waiting in our bioregion to, to come as successional species whenever you have frequent low-intensity fire. So uh, I really do appreciate that you brought that up because it illustrates again how uh, both Mexican and Orlone people practice low-intensity fire as part of their management. It opened up here in San Luis. People would would still tell stories about the old-timers setting fire to the forest up above us. Why? It would open up grazing range for the sheep and for animals that were hunted. And that ended with enclosure and with uh, theft of land grants. And instead, you have this fire suppression regime that does something else really nefarious. When you have frequent low intensity fires, it'll allow for us in our area here in uh, especially in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, to get old growth characteristics. So you'd end up with these ponderosas that are like four people it takes to hug them right at the base. Why? Because the frequent fires would wipe out the competitors. Now, what you have, uh, the corporations, the logging companies will tell you, we have 100 times more trees today than we did in the 1800s. Yes, because you're producing timber plantations. You're not allowing ecosystems to get restored. So you have dog hair forests, right, instead of old growth and late successional complex agroecosystems that are called uneven age management. We have an age even age management regime that basically treats trees as a commodity. And for that reason, here in, in, in our own watershed, they, they consider spruce a weed. So it can't be part of the ecosystem. You got to get rid of it. The spruce, the blue spruce doesn't belong here. We want only duck fir and ponderosa, right? And aspen. Those are the merchantable tree species. And this, you're absolutely right, Renaldo. reflects the, um, the Western-centric Uh, a settler colonial bias in how even the, the, the science of forest management is framed. But I would disagree with you on this. Chicana and Chicano studies has had a lot to say about this. There are a lot of us that write environmental history. I could list a dozen people that have produced books and articles that attack this. The problem is we get ignored by the mainstream scholarship and we get ignored by the New York Times review of books and we get, it, despite the fact that we're doing really amazing work on all the issues that you named, uh, and so I, I just want to bring attention to the fact that there is no gap. I mean, I, maybe in 19, early, I don't know, 92, when Laura Pulido and I did our first environmental justice panel at Knox, people, three people showed up, one left. What does this have? That's a white people thing, environmentalism. A lot has changed since then. We're no longer alone, right, in environmental studies, environmental history, environmental ethics environmental science and all the rest. but now uh, the other issue I want to respond to because I think it's it's really uh, very important and that is uh, what's the framework in relation to uh, chicana chicano Chicaneki studies, uh, the idea of cultural versus racial differences and all of that? actually I've recently started calling humanities the inhumanities. <laughs> and you know, we talk about arts and sciences, the humanities and, and, the, and the natural sciences is really uh, Monsanto is the natural sciences, Monsanto studies, uh, uh, the humanities or the inhumanities. And what we need to do is recognize as, as we should by getting all our Chicana and Chicano studies students to read people, uh, like Renato Rosaldo, who anticipates a lot of the arguments that are made by Linda Twahy Smith in her all very important book, Decolonizing Methodologies. I require all my students to read Renato's stuff on truth and culture. Why? Because of a concept you mentioned earlier, Renato, multiple subjectivities. This is a really important concept. Now I'll come back to that in a moment because it's a very important issue and it helps me explain why I'm against identity politics. Uh-huh. Okay, but let me put that on the on the side burner for now, because it's a complicated issue. What I want to get to right now is that given the structure of the university curriculum and the uh, of the institution as a, an, an epistemological and political enterprise, you have the natural sciences, Monsanto, Inc., right? Monsanto, Bayer, et al., and then you have the inhumanities, and then you have the, the so-called social sciences, which often is uh, social control uh, studies. And uh, when I approach the issue of climate change in Chicana and Chicano studies, I actually do it uh, with disdain for, for that model. So I ignore whatever's happening in the inhumanities. Well, I don't ignore, but I, it, it's not useful to the way I approach the issue of how I teach. I'm interested in subverting STEM, why is Chicana and Chicano studies not challenging the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math? Why? That's a, a more profound question. Plenty of us are writing critiques of the humanities, of history, of philosophy. It's all over the place. That's what Chicana and Chicano studies has been. How many of us are doing critical social science studies of science? and technology at a time when it's never been more badly needed. This conversation is taking place at the University of Washington because the American Ethnic Studies Department is in a position because of the people we have to start teaching critical studies of science and technology to people in the STEM fields. Of course, the danger there, you become a service department to the, to the STEM guys, right? But that's a cost that we may have to be willing to pay because we need to subvert their thinking you know, and I'm not just talking about ethics, I'm talking about how you do research, what knowledge is, what do you mean by knowledge, right? And, and I mean, I've got farmers here who know uh, about how beans do nitrogen fixation. They don't ever call it that. Me dice, one of my mentors me decía, me gusta el frijol peña porque le da fuerza a la tierra. That was his understanding of, of what the Western scientists would call the, the, uh, the nitrogen fixing capability of, of legumes. We have that kind of knowledge. It has been gradually introduced, I think, across universities through various mechanisms, various fields of study. I actually support an agenda that restructures the relationship between Chicana, Chicano, Chikaneki studies and the STEM fields and that that would be a much more subversive, transformative effect in terms of finding scientific allies who are willing to dispense with their Western assumptions, methods, and paradigms, and adopt a more radical approach to the study of things like climate chaos than what we currently have. Because you know what? We're gonna need those scientists to collaborate with us if we're to ever really make effective policy change uh, with regard to anything having to do with these challenges that we face. We need a project that just Massively distributes information to um, you know the colleges of engineering, the colleges uh, of the natural sciences, and the like that are really quite ignorant when it comes to questions not just of ethics but of other peoples and other peoples' knowledges of how to manage ecosystems. And that's what I've been teaching, as you know, Reynaldo for years, for decades. I've been teaching traditional environmental knowledge. What what local place-based <laughs> knowledge exists all over the planet is still a very dominant form of of not just knowledge, but of subjectivity as well. So I really appreciate your comment, but it leads me to challenge us in a different direction, which is what about STEM? You know, what's our relationship to the STEM fields? That's really critical. And I think it was a very important lesson. I remember in the early years of the environmental justice movement that in the early 1990s, when the movement was just really taking uh, hold. And before the first summit, uh, I remember how we were, uh, like the Southwest Network for Environmental Economic Justice, SNEACH, right, led by Richard Moore out of Albuquerque, and how uh, we were teaching people how to do water water quality testing, right, and how to do air sampling, you know, and how to understand the science behind it, right, but we were also uh, using oral history to... Uh, divulge to, re, to celebrate and remember the beauty of what our elders knew about clean air and water and the importance of it. All right, so it wasn't enough to just sort of, here's the Western science, uh, learn some methods, but you really want to transform the scientific enterprise based on our own knowledge. Now with respect to the idea of settler colonialism, because that is an important concept of late, uh, as distinguished from say colonialism or internal colonialism, <laughs> Uh, the idea of, of it being related to extraction and therefore capitalism is only part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. Let me explain what I mean. Um, the, um, the work that I, I think is most important being done on, on this question is by native studies scholars like Glenn Cotart, right? Who wrote the book, Redskin Skin, White Masks uh, mm-hmm. on the politics of recognition in Canada. And what I like about Glenn's approach is how he uses Marx and the concept of the primitive accumulation, which is central for him in order to understand how the settler colonists uh, dispossessed the aboriginal people of Canada from their land. and It's a very powerful example, I think, of what can be done with intersectional type of analysis uh, that's informed by uh, the best in Marx. Uh, by the way, I don't consider myself a Marxism. I think Marxism is 99% vulgar. And, you know, I read Marx. Das Kapitali the Grundrisse. You know, that's what where, where I go to. I don't like to go to the Marxists for my sources. I'd rather go to the old Moor himself. And that's what Glenn Coulthard does. And in, but I have my disagreement with Glenn that has implications for what you just said. And, and that is that he says that in the case of Canada, aboriginals experience the primitive accumulation differently than the European peasantry. And that the reason is that in Europe, they became proletariats, while in Canada, the aboriginals did not get proletarianized. Actually, that's not true. There are plenty of aboriginal Canadians working in timber, mining, they're fracking. They're, you know, the same contradictions that you'll find in the Diné, in the Navajo nation, right? Any of the Council of Energy Resource tribes have these contradictions between, you know, uh, wanting to stay land-based and traditional and then being sucked into the global economy of the fossil fuel or uranium sector, whatever the sector is, whatever extractive uh, sector we're talking about. So uh, this is where you were pointing to the need for a more intersectional approach uh, of looking at race, culture, sex, gender, sexuality, and of course um, uh, class, political economy.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call it intersectional. I think that, uh, that, that term has become uh, taint, politically tainted in very colored and, and racial ways that, uh, uh, well, that, that doesn't job. serve us as well. I think you need, you, one needs to go beyond that because it's tied more to identity politics and scholarship than it is uh, to Chicano and Chicano studies.
1: Well, That's Uh, why that brings me to a conversation around identity politics and why I disdain identity politics. But my my take is probably different than a lot of other people. Uh, I always open up in discussing identity politics with my students with the notion that the original identity politics are the founding principles of this uh, republic of property, which is what it is. It's not a democracy. We live in a republic of property. And the Republic of Property uh, meant that uh, the first identity politics are white, male, and property owning. And that all identity politics uh, issue forth from the first sin of the slave owning, property owning, uh, toxic masculinity of white men that uh, shape the Constitution and the principles that underlie this Republic of Property. And so, because of that, I, I sort of like shake my head a little bit when people. Uh, accuse uh, Mexican origin people, Chikanequis people, uh, Black people, Native American playing identity politics or, or LGBTQ plus people, we all get accused of playing identity politics. The only reason we're having to struggle for recognition of rights is because of the original sin, because all identity politics are basically a response to white male property owning hegemony. And so the sooner we can dispense with that, the better. Now, what that also means is that because of the history of those identity politics, it has shaped our phenomenological experiences, how we perceive, so, how we perceive ourselves to be, uh, as Bourdieu and others would argue, being is perception. Perception is being, I actually disagree with that, but it's, it's there, it's an ideological project. It has tainted, to use your term, uh, a lot of discourse and thinking around anything that has to do with difference Uh, And and that's actually the category that I prefer in terms of, uh, as as opposed to diversity. We're really talking about difference. And difference is a power-knowledge relationship. So there is, I think, a useful contribution there for us in how we teach about this with with, uh, some elements of Foucault uh, being useful. But uh, what I actually think is the most powerful thing is to focus on our subjectivity. I always think identity politics can lead you into trapdoors neoliberal or liberal trapdoors, right? And, and you're already playing, uh, as Emma Perez and others have argued, you're already playing in the master's mirror. You know, you're, you're what's called an international more, if you're a mirroring other, because you're asking for recognition as you view yourself in the master's mirror. And a lot of us think that decolonizing and indigenizing our question of who we are, you smash the mirror. You don't talk to the mirror.
2: That's exactly my point in the responses that I'm saying here. Okay. I mean, it, it's not a question of, of, of disagreeing uh, with the substance. It's a matter of how we present it in relationship, particularly to Chicana and Chicano studies, because uh, it, it is not being recognized uh, out there, if you will, as a unique perspective and i think it is a unique perspective uh you know the, the the if you compare english colonialism or british colonialism to spanish colonialism aside from the time difference and so on british colonialism was settler colonialism why do you have white people dominating the united states but canada Mexico new zealand too. australia etc because they were promoting the settlement of European, primarily northern and Western Europeans. You don't have that in in Spanish. Could, one, there, there weren't that many. And two, they were on the s- southern part of, uh, of Europe or the Mediterranean. Well, and there was a the distinction there. As a sub- but, but what the, the, is- the number of people, particularly indigenous people, in Mesoamerica was as much as 25 million you know, during the entire uh, 400 years of colonialism, you had maybe uh, 350,000 Europeans enter and maybe 300,000 African, black Africans enter into uh, Mesoamerica. There was no way that that was going to overwhelm the indigenous population. So we're basically still an indigenous population. On the oh, other hand, when so you look Mexican. at you know religion, ninety Mexican. plus percent of the population of, of Mexico is considered Christian or and or Catholic. Uh, so so the idea of what changes took place during a, the Spanish colonial period versus the English colonial period, and and particularly the perception uh, or the rationale that the the British. Used to take over Indian land, like the Cherokee Nation, uh, you know, which covered five or six states, uh, and 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 then engage in the invasion of Mexico to take almost a million square miles of uh, of the northern Mexican territory. Uh, was that you know they just weren't being productive with the land? They you know they weren't using it. They weren't exploiting it. In ways that uh, you know uh, could be uh, could could develop be human human development, but they could do it, and so what their purpose was well. Then let's just take over the land and be more productive because the Indians and the Mexicans, you know, can't do it. And you oh, see that in, in that relationship important. to U.S.-Mexican War and in relationship to, to the movement. And so, so are I you I'm saying, disagree are you with you. i saying that Mexico is a separate is,
1: colony. Are you saying that Mexico is
2: not a settler colony?
1: Yes, I'm. I'm saying. I would disagree strongly. Look, let's let me just interject something because I think you're actually going down a very. But but if
2: you're if you're going to say settler colony, it's going to be in relationship to the colonial period. Yeah, I I like to speak to
3: uh, um, from the point of view of Arizona, Mm -hmm. since I've been here since uh, '92, and and you did mention uh, Devon and your talk about Guadalupe. Uh, but uh, it also goes back to here, Arizona, go back to the uh, seven, 750 uh, 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 after, after Christ, in the sense that right here in Arizona, you had the Kohokum uh, and they, they uh, flourished uh, from the seven, 700s to the uh, 1400s. And then all of a sudden there was no water. And then they just left everything. Uh, although the uh, uh, channels that they used to have to deliver water for their agriculture that's what was used to rebuild Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, because here in, in, in Phoenix, now it's uh, about the fifth largest city uh, in, uh, in the country and it's it has grown ever since the uh, free trade agreement. Uh, uh, and it's expanded because the roads lead to Canada. Mm-hmm. So and then uh, they lead also to the maquilas. And here you do have toxic barrios. You have uh, urban heat islands, which is what you you use the example for uh, Guadalupe. So that, but uh, as you know, also uh, Arizona used to be part of uh, New Mexico, uh, all the way to Yuma. And then from Yuma used to be part of California, so they didn't exist. So there's a need to uh, um, perhaps develop scholars on uh, uh, around uh, climate justice inside Arizona, or you could extend some of your studies to link them up. That will, will inspire people because Arizona is growing. It's about 5 million people in Phoenix itself. And Chicanos, Chicanas, Latinos, there are about a million and a half just in the city. And of course, Tucson has problems with water. It cannot grow anymore because there's lack of water. And if you go down to Southeastern Arizona, same thing. They have problems with water. There's not enough water to grow. And so that sense that it's very important to uh, also develop uh, scholars uh, under uh, for uh, uh, under climate justice to develop, uh, to, to deal also with, uh, with zona. And uh, we do have here uh, resistance in the form of, there's a group called Chispa, and it's headed by Teo Argueta. I think he's a, a Guatemalan origin uh, immigrant, but he's working inside the Chicano community to, to deal with his problems with uh, toxic uh, barrios and also with the urban heat, uh, heat islands so that um, um, but what can you uh, suggest for uh, uh, a greater development of the uh, climate justice movement inside of uh, Arizona
0: I want to thank you all especially Devon for your talk and Ronaldo for responding and everybody's participation today I think you point out the deep catastrophic crisis we're in and as well many ideas for the solidarity and the activism we need to do to resist them uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you at our next podcast. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye, everybody.
2: Bye. All no, right. All no, right.